Welcome back to another Hunt Lore episode. Man, it's been a while. I've been off, uh, you know, hunting and doing family stuff, so I haven't been around to record a podcast episode in a while. This is episode 12, and I talk with Bill Thompson, the founder of Spartan Forage. You can go check out his website at spartanforge.ai. It is basically a whitetail prediction app with a success rate of anywhere from 50 to 70%. That is amazing if you know anything about whitetails, because most of the time we get it wrong when we try and predict whitetail movement and when they move. This app isn't available in Canada yet. It will be shortly, or we're hoping so. Uh, the Canadian government just has a bunch of regulations of apps to be released in Canada. So eventually it will be released in Canada. And I'm sure Bill will mention that on social media on his Instagram account, Spartan Forge. It's a great discussion with Bill. We talk deer hunting. We talk whitetail prediction movements. I basically quiz him about big woods because that's what I hunt uh, here in Manitoba predominantly right now is big woods whitetails and just how I should go about hunting them during the rut. So I'm not going to really get into that now. You guys can listen to the whole episode and I hope to have them on again in the future and maybe go a little bit more in depth. So if you have any questions uh, for Bill, when we have him on next, just shoot me a message on Instagram or email me at thehuntlore at gmail.com. And then I can formulate a list of questions for Bill about hunting whitetails here in Manitoba or Canada. All right. So that's what this episode's about. So where have I been? What have I been doing? Well, I went on a two-week flying moose hunt here in northern Manitoba with my brother and my dad. We had, I guess, great hopes for the hunt. <laughs> well, the hunt, it was good, I guess. Uh, it turned into a, a camping trip. Didn't hear a moose, didn't see a moose. Very little sign, old sign. This is a lake that Skinny Rye and Jason and I found a few years ago and we've had success out there while well, jason has he shot a couple bulls out there and had some other close encounters i almost shot a moose out of there one year but the wind had swirled on me a couple times so i never been able to get a shot off on a moose at all and we just didn't see any we called a lot put a lot of effort into it just nothing i felt we hunted well we hunted properly uh, we weren't putting a lot of pressure on the lake. Our exits or, or entries, I should say, and exits were clean. Uh, hunting the wind, hunting spots that have been tried and true over the years. And I did go for a little bit of walk, uh, a little bit of a walk behind camp. It's a burned out hillside. The moose, it's a natural travel corridor to get from one side of the lake to the other. No fresh sign in there. No fresh tracks, no fresh droppings, no rubs or breaks it was just like the moose weren't there and it could be a case that the moose just were at a different lake this year and just not rutting on the lake we were at or have they been shot out in winter time i do know that the hunting pressure does increase in winter because people are able to get around there with snowmobiles a little bit easier but still so i don't know if it's a combination of hunting pressure predation didn't really see too many fresh tracks. The fresh tracks that I did see are relatively fresh, had wolf tracks on them. So, but I didn't hear any wolves, but it was still a good time. We had a couple nice fish fries. Uh, and you know what? It was our first time moose hunting together ever. 
So it was nice to reconnect with my brother and my dad. It's been a while since we've hunted together. Probably over 10 years was the last hunt that we've been on. And like I said, the first moose hunt. All right. So before we get into the episode, a few things I need to go over. This podcast is solely financed by myself. So you know what, in order to keep the lights on here at Hunt Lore, I want to make this a long-term thing, but I don't want to be selling advertising to just any other company, and I don't want to make this uh, like a Patreon deal either. Because you know what, I just think we have enough bills in our lives, we don't need any more. So to keep this kind of going, and to help out with the payments of this podcast, I thought, you know what, you guys need to know about Black Bear Remedies. It's a company that my wife founded. It is a skincare product for men and women, children as well. It's a moisturizing product. It can be used on as well as mosquito bites, poison ivy. So it has a lot of treatment possibilities and purposes as well. People have used it on sunburns. They've used it oh, with for eczema. There's some customers we have that, or that Donna has, that the only thing that works on their eczema is this bear butter. So you can go to blackbearremedies.com. You can get it online there. We're able to sell in most places all over the United States. We're able to sell. We're able to sell in British Columbia here in Canada. Um, we can't ship to Alberta, but then we can ship to Saskatchewan. We can't ship to Ontario, but then I believe or Quebec, but I think every other province is open and available. So people just don't, this is a really good product. People just don't know about it. So if you like the podcast and you want to support the podcast, but get value for your money instead of just paying a monthly subscription to something that doesn't add a crazy amount of value, but so go to blackbearremedies.com. You will be able to support Hunt Lore, but you're also going to get value for your money. And something that's actually quite valuable, especially coming into these winter months. Your hands are going to be drier, uh, going to get beat up, you know, a little bit more, especially with hunting season coming around the corner and ice fishing season as well. So go there, get it. You guys will love it. I guarantee you that you'll like it. And the second thing is if you want to have a, like a cool looking hat or some funny sayings about bear hunting, go to blackbearwear.com. Let me spell black. B-L-A-K, and then bearwear.com. So basically, you're getting some value there too because you're getting a hat and you're getting clothes. And we all need to wear clothes and some of us like to wear hats. So you're going to get some value there. You're just not spending money on a monthly subscription. You're going to get something. And that all helps uh, the podcast to stay on the air because, you know, every month there are payments that have to be paid to, to keep this going. So that would be much appreciated. So that's about it. Um, yeah, what else is there? There was one other thing. The next couple podcasts, I want to talk whitetail hunting. I'm going to have Skinny Rye, Skinny Rye Derlego, Ryan Derlego from Stick Flingers Manitoba Bow Hunts back on the podcast. And we are going to talk whitetail hunting. And it's going to be based upon, like, we're going to talk about a lot of things in the whitetail world right now. We're going to talk tree saddles. We're going to talk uh, run and gun, mobile hunting. That's a big thing. We're going to talk about the differences between farmland and big woods because we both have experience with both environments. And we hear a lot of things. We hear a lot of tactics that are used down in the U.S. or in areas. It doesn't have to just be in the U.S., but in areas that 
really aren't applicable to our own situation. So we're just going to kind of give our perspective on things that are working for us and more so Rye because he is the most experienced between the two of us. So yeah, that is going to be pretty exciting. Uh, there's a couple other people I want to get on. Uh, this podcast is just going to grow and grow more. I have a lot of great ideas here. I'm going to have somebody on eventually. We're going to talk about the state of moose in Manitoba, but in depth, like a look from a different perspective that's not shared too much on social media. I'm not going to give that away, but I do have some things in the works and it's going to be amazing. And maybe we'll come to some sort of understanding of what is happening to the moose in Manitoba and how we can all work together on this. All right, so enough of me talking. Let's get into episode 12 with Bill Thompson, the founder of Spartan Forge. My name is David Hepner, and this is the Hunt Lord Podcast, where we will spark our imaginations and pay tribute to the time-honored tradition of hunting by sharing our stories of the hunt. Hunt Lore is brought to you by Black Bear Wear, bear hunting apparel for bear hunters and everyone else. Get it, wear it, share it. Hello. Hey, Bill. Hey, how's it going? Good, you? Oh, busy, busy. Yourself? <laughs> well, yeah, I was busy bear baiting today. I have a few guys coming out bear hunting, uh, just local guys, so... Yeah, busy doing that. So that was a bit, uh, bit of a tiring day for myself. Yeah, nice. How long does your guys' fall season run till? It goes right to November first. It opens August fifteenth, but it really is the best time. Is if you're hunting fall time, is really before October. I've tried to run hunts later, thinking that because the baits do get hammered hard. You go there and you're like, there's no bait left. They're all nocturnal. They turn nocturnal like as you go into October. Wow. That, that surprises me, especially with how cold it can be and how much energy they must need. Oh yeah. It's like, you're thinking, oh yeah, we're going to get on the biggest, fattest bears because I've always wanted to shoot one of those like jumbo bears where their belly is dragging on the ground. Right. But yeah, they, they go uh, pretty nocturnal and they're skittish in the fall. You get one or two good, good evenings. Um, and then it kind of slows down after that. If you apply too much pressure on them. Huh? Yeah, it's not like and this. Are brand. you are you near Winnipeg? Oh yeah, yeah, I'm in Winnipeg. Yeah, yeah, I'm in Winnipeg. Oh, you're in Winnipeg. Yeah, my, yeah, I'm right in the heart of the city there. So, like all my hunts, you must have heard. Uh, it's a just a small yeah, little yeah, yeah. yeah small little town there. So that's where I do a lot of my personal baiting, and then uh, like in fall time, and then just local guys who want to come out, I'll take them out there because it's it's relatively close and easy enough to get there. So is that your land up there that you use up there? Or? No, it's all crown or public land. So there's, there's a lot of it and oh, bears, wow. yeah, bears are underutilized in Manitoba. That's, but for the company I guide for in spring, we hunt out by Swan river, uh, like in the duck mountains and the porcupine mountains. Okay. And, and the bear hunting there is tremendous. That That's <laughs> like, it's good here, but close to Winnipeg. Like if you're looking for a black bear, they don't get necessary, like just a black phase, I should say. Uh, they don't necessarily get as big as the ones out West on average. And on out West, you're going to have every color phase out there. And so I've been bear hunting out in like, um, trying to remember, I think 
me just check my 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 um make sure I'm uh, yeah Quebec. I went out to in La, have you ever heard of Lac Brulee? Uh, I can't say I I have, but maybe you know like just. Oh, it, it was a beautiful area out there. I was it's like north of me, about ten hours. That's the only bear hunting I've done in Canada, but I haven't done that. I haven't been up there since all the craziness happened. I don't even know if I'd be allowed to go up there right now. And yeah, hunt. I guess I'm not it sure all what the, what the rules are. Yeah, it all depends. I know. Hopefully, they can those stupid rules. I'm with you on that. No one. Well, I guess there's some people here that still like those rules, but I'm not one of them. That's for sure. But yeah, well, yeah. Well, I appreciate you doing the um the podcast tonight. Yeah. Well. I appreciate you coming on. <laughs> That's, you're kind yeah, of a of big, course, of course. yeah. You're kind of a big deal these days. I don't know about all that, but uh, well, it sure seems see. like it out there. Yeah. So I guess the first kind of how I heard about you and your company, I guess I should say your company more so, Spartan Forge, was on a pod. It was on a podcast. I know that for sure. Most likely the Southern Outdoorsmen. Those guys. I think they're down in Alabama. Yep, yep, Jacob and uh, and Andrew and those guys, yep. Yeah, so when I really started not necessarily wanting, well, I guess taking deer hunting to a next level, I uh, just wanted to hunt some new ground, big, like, public land areas here where no one really goes into, like, off the road, that is. They'll drive the roads and try and shoot a deer off there. Anyways, I was listening to their podcast, and you were on there, and it was, like, really detail-oriented, really scientific, analytical, and what drew my attention was the GPS caller data that you guys were able yep. to just get a hold of and then kind of put it into manageable, I guess, statistical readings or something that we could understand, the layperson could understand. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So that's, and we've been waiting here in Canada for our own Spartan Forge app, but you said that's coming out. We're waiting for your government to approve it or whoever in your government works with Apple and Google and stuff. They keep giving us more and more requirements every time we submit a bill. Oh, that is, yeah, that sounds like Canada to me. Yeah, that's because that's of location sharing and stuff. And, you know, we're hoping to get into doing address stuff as, as, as soon as we can get, find that data. And it's just been, it's been uh, frustrating to say the least, but I think we're getting close. Yeah. All that red tape, all the bureaucracy that's involved, like, yep. just let guys do business. You know, I don't, I don't get it. Um, yeah, like we can't even, in Canada, we can't even share, uh, they don't even have, I guess, like food banks. They We have food banks, but you can't share your wild game. Like, in, yeah, in the, in the States, I think you guys can, right? Like if you... Oh, yeah. Yeah. We have programs dedicated to it to make sure homeless people can get, we have what's called Hunters for the Homeless out here, so... Yeah. Canada, no. Too much red tape. Um, they're all scared of getting sued, even though lawsuits are next to nothing out here like i've never really heard of anyone suing anyone for anything so yeah canada was not a, i lived in canada for many years i think i told you it's yeah. not a very litigious place like mm -mm. they're not exactly suing each other left and right like you know people in the states can it can happen pretty often here yeah yeah so then yeah i heard about you on southern outdoorsman and then you made a comment on instagram something about manitoba or winkler even yeah, <laughs> and I was like, okay, uh, there's not too many p people that would know that area. So I messaged you, and yeah, you went to high school with my wife for a year or two. 
Yeah, for two years I went to high school out there, and then I actually went to grade school in Plum Coulee, which is east of Winkler. Yeah. And and I also lived in Rheinfeld for a year. Oh, no kidding, eh? Yeah. Which, yeah, which is east of Winkler as well there. Um, I, yeah, I, I love that place. I love those people. Um, you know, it, it's one of the – it's like a – I always say it's one of the best places in the world. Like, you know, it, it's it's – Every time I talk to somebody and I, I tell them that I've lived up there, it's like you're never going to find a more hardworking, honest, family-centric group of people, especially like within the Mennonite community up there. It's just like a bunch of wonderful people. Yep, that's true. That's true. Did you yep. do any hunting when you were out, like when you were a kid? No, I didn't. I didn't hunt then. I was too young. Um, I, I had started hunting when I was young with like my uncles and stuff. But then when I lived up in Canada, I wasn't around anyone who hunted and I didn't have a means to do it on my own. So I never really did any hunting up there. And, but I'd like to one day, like once things start to open up, like I've got friends who have taken some pretty nice deer up there on their farmlands. They've opened it up to me. It's just not been, I've got a, a friend of mine lives, lives Northwest of um, Altona. He's yeah. got a bunch of land up there. That he's killed some good deer on and I've got a friend that lives near a Hutterite colony. Um, kind of more north of Altona and he's got a bunch of nice land up there and they've all offered it to me. I just haven't been able to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hopefully in the next year or so they change the, the rules here. I'm going to be hunting in, um, Wahala, North Dakota. Um, in two weeks I'll be hunting the opener. Up, well, I'll be scouting up there in two weeks and I'll be hunting the opener on the first. Oh, nice. That's always, yeah, yep. I've, I've thought of that, uh, not the early season, but the late season, because I think their season the late go, good too. Yeah. And I was always <laughs> like here, I was a man, I wish we could bait, you know, like when I was younger, right. Just thinking that would be solve all my problems with hunting. Um, and I, <laughs> I know, I know it doesn't because I, I have done it out in Ontario where you're allowed to. Um, but anyways, it would just be so frigid out there. I'm like, now as I'm getting older, I'm like, ah, I don't know if I want to endure the, <laughs> that, that cold in December. Yeah. It gets pretty dang cold there, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, it's pretty cool, man. Um, uh, and how many podcast episodes have you done? Well, I have so I have a few in the bank. Uh, there's five online right now, but I got like another five or six that are recorded. Uh, I I have another one after I talk to you, uh, another guy who's preparing to go up to Alaska. So he's nice. pretty excited to talk about and shares a kind of preparation with that. I got another guy who completed the North American 29 just recently. So I want to talk to him and see his perspective and see if it was worth it. Oh, that's you know? awesome. Yeah. Because like, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I talked to uh, a couple people that haven't done it, but that, that have known people that have done it and, it's a tough go, you know, you sacrifice a lot to achieve yeah. that goal. Yeah, so it's basically like uh, Hunt Lore is just, my idea for it was just to go over hunting stories because that's kind of what captivated me as a younger guy to getting into it, kind of just going to the archery lanes too and hearing the old guys' stories and kind of getting some tips and tricks off of them. So that's just kind of how kind of my mentality for hunt lore and just kind of see where it goes from there. But you know, when you're telling hunting stories, tactics and techniques always come up and whatever else, you know, as hunters, we can think of to talk about. 
So how did you get into hunting specifically? You said you had a couple uncles there that got you into it. Like how old were you? What did that look like? Where were you? Um, yeah, so um, we, I started hunting. Um, I went out with, I had, I had an uncle who did it. I also had a friend of my mother's who did it, who actually hunted our property. And they take me out with them every once in a while. But I, I really didn't get serious about hunting until I had um, uh, joined the military. And I'd come back to North Dakota. I think I was on some mid-tour leave or something like that. My brother-in-law at the time had, um, been a bow hunter and he the land that i had been hunting when i was a kid he had said that he had seen some big deer up there so he had kind of gotten me into it that way um with bow hunting so he actually let me shoot his bow i sighted it in and used it hunting while i was home and um sent an arrow right over right over a deer the first time i you know i sighted the bow in i thought i was ready to go i got up in a tree and just lucked out and and sent an arrow right over the top of a buck, but I was addicted at that point. Um, and it was kind of like no going back. Um, that was my first bow, uh, encounter with a deer. And that was on my mother's property, which is, uh, in Garter, North Dakota. Um, which is probably two hours South of you where you're at there. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So then you had that experience. Um, how long did it take you to get your first deer? Um, so with rifles, I had shot some when I was younger. I actually shot one of my uncle's biggest deer uh, on his property there. Um, but with a bow is really like shoot, hunting with a rifle in North Dakota, um, can be not that daunting of a task. A lot of people just set up, you know, in the middle of a field with a, uh, you know, set up with a, uh, an ice, um, an ice fishing shed and, uh, we'll sit there and watch the game while they're waiting for a deer to come out in the field. So I kind of count my hunting experiences really starting. Um, the first, the first deer I shot was like a basket four by four, yeah, four by four with a bow, um, maybe maybe a hundred inches, and that was back in. Let me get my dates wrong here, so I'm trying to remember. Maybe 20, 20, 2009, maybe two thousand ten, something like that. I'm getting old as well, so I'm starting to get my dates <laughs> oh, yeah. here. But yeah, um, that it was a velvet four by four, and it had just came like I was hunting the spot, same spot that I had known for many years, and it had just come through grunting with velvet on, which was weird because you just generally don't see them vocalizing that much when they're in velvet. Yeah, exactly. And I was just yeah, I was just sitting there in the tree, and this deer just came by grunting up a storm. And, um, I was trying to get him to stop and I was grunting and grunting and trying to get him to stop. And he didn't, but he ended up stopping just by his own accord. And, uh, yeah, I popped an arrow, got him right in the, um, got him right in the uh, boiler room and he didn't go, I don't know, maybe 15 yards and was down on the ground. And that was you know, from then on out, I was hooked. Like I was hooked before, actually I was hooked <laughs> the first time I'd missed that. I gotten what people kind of call traditional, traditionally called buck fever. Um, and then I got on that one that I actually put down and then that was pretty much over for me from there on out. And at that point, I believe, yeah, I was living at that point when I took that deer, I was living in Maryland. Um, and then I went right back to Maryland and kept hunting and hunted hard. Um, and been hunting in that area now for 12 years or so, 13 years, um, in, in on the East coast, all the way from, you know, up in Pennsylvania, all the way down to the panhandle of Maryland 
um, down into Ohio and up into North Dakota. And, uh, that's pretty much the kind of my, 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 my home ground to these days are those places which is pretty much where I spend most of my time hunting. Yeah. So when you got into it, uh, afterwards, after you got that deer, were you hunting in solo or were you hunting with buddies? Like what did that look like? Um, so when I was home in North Dakota, I would be hunting with my brother-in-law, Alan. Um, and then when I was hunting out East, I had a buddy that was kind of showing me the ropes because Maryland really kicked my butt for the first couple of years. Um, like mountain buck country where it's nothing like the, the agriculture in the Midwest where, you know, you pretty much can be guaranteed to see deer. Um, if you just get on a field, like you might not be able to shoot them or get on them, but you're going to see them. Um, it's kind of a totally different beast out there in um, in Maryland. So I had a buddy named Dan and, uh, he ran like, uh, he ran like an appliance repair company. And, uh, so he had his, uh, he had time, you know, he would do a, he'd start working at four in the morning and be done by noon or vice versa. He'd start at noon and be done at four or five. And we'd hunt, you know, pretty, pretty hard for a few years together. And he kind of showed me the ropes and he was a really good deer hunter. Um, and kind of educated me on Maryland, um, deer hunting, um, especially up there in, in mountain country. And, uh, th- he was, those were pretty much the two guys that I spent time with. And then beyond that, it was hunting on my own a lot because, I think a lot of people have the same experience, but my first few years bow hunting, I was obsessive, like all the time. Like anytime I had an hour, even I would go out and sit and a lot of times seeing nothing and wasting a lot of time. But, um, I was young and I, I didn't really care. I just wanted to be out in the woods and hunting and I loved it. And it was worth it to me to just even see deer. So that was my, you know, early, hunting days. And then as I evolved, you know, I started hunting different places. And as I started becoming successful, I wanted to challenge myself in other places. And, um, I'd say I really got into like my, into the swing of things where I was pretty successful, no matter where I was going, maybe about four or five years into it. Um, I feel like I had, you know, was doing pretty well and, uh, started really challenging myself by just trying to go after trophy animals or what some people would consider trophy animals. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, up until I started the hunting company, I was hunting all the time and I had a buddy of mine in the industry tell me when we were on a pro staff, like a retreat for my company, Spartan Forge, he basically told me, um, one of the worst things a hunter can do is start a hunting company. Oh yeah. The moment you do that, you're kind of done hunting, <laughs> Yeah, which has been pretty true for me so far. Yeah. I, I could see that. Um, so yeah, you're out there like a lot of us when we first get into it, we're tore up with it, just doing it all the time, not really paying attention to proper, like maybe high, um, high success days or the potential, you know, like with the weather and, uh, movement patterns and all that. So have you kind of dialed it into like a certain time frame that you like to hunt for whitetails or, or are you kind of... Uh- I kind of like, well, I should, let me think about this for a second. I like the early season. (laughs) I really like it all. I like all phases of the hunt. Mm -hmm. But if you told me I could only hunt one phase for the rest of my life, it would, and it depends, of course, on where you are in the country, but like where I am now, um, it would be like that end of the third week of October into like the second week of November. I I just love the rut. A, A lot of guys do. I know that. And it's, exciting but um i've been most successful during the rut 
and around those, um, right when the big boys start looking around out here, which is about the third week of October into about the second week of November. And then I've also been super successful um, kind of during the first, or I'm sorry, during the second peak of estrus, which is somewhere around like the second week of December or something like that. I, I, I well, 10th of December out here is when I believe it is. So I've been super successful, um, at least relatively to the rest of the season, but I mean, I've had good success early season. I've had good success late season, but I guess if I had to pick one phase, it would be right before the, you know, two, two and a half weeks before the peak of the rut, right to about a week after the rut, just because of the, uh, really anything can happen. Yeah. Whereas in the beginning, first part of the season and the last part of the season, deer can be pretty predictable, um, or more predictable than they are during other phases of the year. And, you know, you can have never seen a deer and all of a sudden it shows up, you know, rutting coming right by you and it's over from the other property or what have you. Um, so yeah, I love the grind of it. I love the challenge. I love getting in on fresh sign, um, and just, uh, getting after those bucks and it's, it's a cat and mouse game. I love playing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like out here in Manitoba, a couple buddies and I, we've kind of been, I don't know, keeping too much, uh, like data points on like our, our sightings and stuff hunting, but just kind of from our memories. And it's basically seems like November 4th to the 14th is when you can expect some really, I know that's kind of probably a stereotypical kind of time frame, but here there's a shift from after that, you know, the, the lull or whatever people want to call it, or the lock lockdown, I should say, not the lull, but the lockdown and the deer here, they go on to a big feed pattern after that, because generally we have quite a bit of snow and cold temperatures. So areas that were good for those first two weeks of November that you think you're going to catch maybe a buck cruising for does while the does have moved out of all those areas and they really shift to more like a winter feed pattern. Um, that's what I've been noticing, which is kind of interesting, frustrating, because if you don't have the feed, like here in Manitoba, we can't plant food plots at all. So then you're kind of at the But can you hunt natural food plots up there? Natural? Uh, like, well, as in like hunting agriculture where there's actual, you know, food plots sitting right in front of you. Yeah, well, yeah, we can hunt uh, like a standing cornfield if if the farmer yeah, okay. right. if the yeah. farmer decided to leave it up. But the thing is then you're at the Yeah, mercy. I've heard some crazy rules. I was yeah. just talking to a guy the other day who said, he was, t- I'm trying to remember where he was, but he hunt. he was hunting bear in the Southeast and there was some crazy rule. Like you can't even hunt them anywhere near food, whether it's natural, like planted or, or baited or anything like that. Like they will check the, Oh really? Uh, they will check the throat or the, you know, the first digestive yeah. piece of the animal and it's got fresh food in there. You'll get in trouble. How are you going to be? So able that's to... the reason why I asked that question. I was yeah. like, I don't even know how you would do that or manage that. Like I would, I would just not hunt there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like obviously, exactly. Obviously here in Manitoba, them kind of pigeonholed to hunt here. But with that, it's like, yeah, we can hunt egg if the farmer so chooses to leave it up for quite often. They will leave standing corn up uh, and then harvest it sometimes in spring and leave it up over the winter. But then you're at the mercy of a landowner. If you don't own land, uh, and so all the game kind of, they migrate a little bit. There's a little bit of a migration that takes place. Sure. Yeah. I've noticed that even in the big woods areas where there's cuts, you know, fresh cuts, they obviously go to that. And then that's, well, you'll see a bunch of hunters around there generally just hunting the cut, not the edges. 
We don't have a lot of guys that are very detail-oriented out here. Not like in the States. <laughs> you guys take it to the next level. Uh, yeah, I mean, you guys also don't have the comp. Do you have the competition out there? I suppose I shouldn't oh, assume because I don't know. No. Um, like <laughs> no. I would say that like, you know, hunters per square mile for you guys is probably a lot less than what it is, you know, for us. It is, but our deer population in a lot of areas is a lot less as well. So is that right? Yeah. If you go into the farmland, sure, you're going to be. I got a little piece of private that I'm allowed to hunt, and it's good for deer. You know, any deer. Not a lot of big bucks on there, but that's where my son, you know, he shot his first few deer on that property. I've let him basically handed that spot over to him and he's 15. So he can, he's setting stands up on his own, you know, walking out there doing all day sits on the weekends. That's what he was doing last year. And it's like, yeah, a good place to learn. But if you want to get trophy bucks, not maybe not the best, the big woods, that's where we have some giants in there, but the deer uh, population's low. Like if you see one to two deer, three deer a day, you're, you're having a good day. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I can see how that would produce big deer. So uh, mentioning your son there, does he rifle or bow hunt? He bow hunts. Yeah. Yeah. He bow hunts. Um, and how did you get him into that? How did I get him into that? Oh man. Yeah. I mean, I just asked because I've got a 13 year old son who I'm trying to get into it and you'd think it would be no problem for me, but it's been very difficult. I just can't get him to get into it. Yeah, maybe my answer might not be the best because it started at a very young age when he was about three years old. I was taking him every year and I was very relaxed when I would take him out. I wasn't like, oh, you got to be quiet. It was not about being quiet. It was always about him enjoying it. So I'd have snacks, of course, with him. If he wanted to leave, I'd say, okay, we can leave. But I always convince him to like, let's just go walk around, you know, just kind of keep him out there a little bit. And make it worth the drive, driving out. Um, So that's how I did it. And then just over the years, he just came to love it. Like he would be the first guy sitting outside my bedroom door when we were going to go fishing, waiting for me to wake up. Yeah, that's funny. I I can get my son fishing. No problem. Um, I I think what I might have done was I took him hunting and I only had access to public land. So I would always, we would always have to hike and stuff. So I was bringing him in and hiking and either up in a tree stand with me or, or whatever. So I think he probably got like the rougher version of it. I probably should have thought it through more. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely, I gave my kid uh, very, like, it was very posh, I guess you could say. It was very easy for him. Like I had him in the game cart with a little um, car seat attached to it and pushing him through the woods. So right. yeah, he didn't have to walk yeah. or anything, but now he's into it, right? He shot an elk last year as well with his bow, a spike bull. So that was pretty awesome. I was able to, that's awesome. Yeah. That was just like so much fun. And yeah, he shot a few bears now too, of course, but so, yeah. So with the big woods, it's like when I I wanted to ask you a question and I probably have asked you in personal messages there too, at one time or another, just when are these bucks like I know people want to hunt buck bedding areas and all that and that's not really my situation out here and it's not a lot of people's situations uh out here it's mostly like when is the I guess when is a buck on his feet the most during daylight like a time period I would say based on what you're telling me about your population and your and your buck if your buck to doe ratios are pretty even like when I see spread out populations where the buck to doe ratio is pretty even. I will see the most daylight movement during the early part of the rut. 
So if you're prime, like I, I have not looked at the, um, I've not looked at the bio, um, the biological data for Southern Canada, but I would imagine that it's pretty close to North Dakota. And I believe North Dakota's prime rut. And what I mean by prime rut is when the majority of the, bre- the breeding is happening. Mm-hmm. I believe it's November 12th. So that would tell me that from October 27th or so, maybe 26th, up until the 10th or 11th, at least in North Dakota, and not maybe a little longer up there because if the do- if the does if there's less does, then it takes more time for the bucks to breed them, especially if the population um, the sex the sex ratio is balanced. So my my guess would be it would be right during that time frame that you were talking about earlier is when you're probably going to catch them in the mountains on their feet or I'm sorry, in the big wood settings on their feet the most, because they just have to be searching. They have to be searching. And that makes, that makes sense. And I know it might seem like a simple answer to it, but it's also nice to have some confirmation because you've looked at how many hours of deer studies. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, I just got a very large study out of the Southeast. One of the largest studies we've ever gotten. And I've been looking through it for about three or four days. Um, and it's a little different. It's, it's, you know, Florida and Georgia data. And so it's not the normal data sets. And those, those deer do not act like the deer up where you're at. But I was just looking at um, some Ohio deer here about two weeks ago and some Pennsylvania deer that are in big woods country, actually relatively flat big woods country. And it was pretty consistent there. Just you know, coming if the if the population ratios are even, you're going to see the the most movement, daylight movement, um, during hunting season uh, at that point because they've got to be up, they've got to be competing, and they've got to be looking for the does. Now, if there's does everywhere, if there's a lot of does, or if you think your 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 ratios are skewed, um, then I see a lot of times in cold regions where where we're talking about where you're up at, then I see a lot of the daytime movement late in the season, Mm. a lot more than you would think. Yeah. Now they will be tighter to what you might traditionally call their core or their bedding areas, but they will be moving and they'll be trying to bed right in the food. A lot of times you'll see them in the stand, like right in standing corn. Um, when, when I, when I happen to know the agriculture of the area, they'll be bedding right in standing corn. They'll be bedding right in the, the bushes um, where they're trying to eat at because they are trying to avoid the cold. And then the food that's on the ground offers two things. It offers the food that's right there, but then generally that food also um, offers cover from the wind. So they'll bed right in it. Yeah. So maybe something like a cut, uh, if you're in more of a big wood setting, they're going to be just tucked off into maybe some pine trees or, or something yep. like that. Some yep. adjacent cover. And then they might. Yep. Thermal yeah. cover. Yep. Yeah, that that makes uh, sense to me. So, what time of day are these bucks in similar terrain habitats like southern Manitoba? Are they moving? Like, at what time is it uh, that ten to two kind of range, or are you seeing most of the movement uh, dawn and uh, dusk? And now we're talking about during the rut. Yeah, we're talking the rut. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah. So um, you will see the majority of the movement, the most movement is still going to be during those crepuscular hours, which are morning and and night. So morning sunrise and night fall, but you'll see a fair amount kind of during this 10 to two time, you'll see another jump. Like basically what will happen is they will, 
move a ton, especially during, you know, when the sun's coming up or the sun's going down, they'll do their most movement and they'll be very aggressive with their movement. And I've seen them go, you know, between seven and 10 miles in just a morning. Oh, wow. Like tons of, tons of, tons of movement. And then they'll take a rest. They'll bed down, you know, usually around eight thirty or a quarter to nine in a lot of places, similar to what we're talking about where you're at or where your listeners would be right now. And they'll stay like that until 10 or 10 30. And then they get restless again and they might start making some scrapes or tending to scrapes or tending to scrapes downwind of does. And they'll continue to do that until about two to 3 PM. And of course these are not exact times, but it's general. Um, and then, you know, if there's a hot doe near them, they're moving all day. So they're, they're not going to stop. Like if they're locked on a hot doe, they're going to be moving all day. But if they're still kind of like seeking and, and doing some chasing, then you'll see that break right around 2 PM. And then you'll see it for maybe an hour or two. And then you'll see them start to, you know, get right back up and move again. Say sundown at six or five 30 or five 45. You'll see them at about three 45 moving aggressively again until an hour or two after sundown. And you'll see that pretty consistently throughout the period of time that we're talking about. Yeah. And are they moving a lot at night? Like I know we always say, yeah. Okay. So we always say that deer are not nocturnal or I guess they're moving a lot at night. So that, so that the data is showing that then as well. Yeah. They're moving a ton at night and they're doing a lot of their excursions at night when they're moving their longest distances It will be done at night. Um, rarely I'll see it in the day, but I have seen it in the day, but most of it, I'd see the, when we start talking about a deer doing three, four, five, six, all the way up to 15, 20 miles. Um, and it's generally to these same spots. So you'll have a buck, you know, a, a trophy class or a trophy age deer between four and a half and eight and a half years old. We'll have kind of two spots that will always go back to like a similar spot every year and do these things that I call excursions and they'll happen between one and four times. And that excursion will generally happen at night and then they'll spend a day or two in that area where they, they do the excursion to, they'll check the does in that area. And if there's does to be mated, they'll stay there and they'll bed the does. And then once they're done, they go right back to their, their main spot. Yeah. So that kind of brings me to another question. I've been thinking about this because uh, I found a couple nice spots in the big woods, a uh, little difficult to get into and whatnot. They're kind of like pinch points, I guess, as much of a pinch point as you can find out there. But now I, I come into the situation where, well, do I hunt it two, three days in a row because there's a lot of mobile hunting going on these days in the States, right? But I'm dealing with a low deer population, so I could go sit there for a day that buck isn't come. He might not be coming through that day because it's just not on his schedule doing his loop, right? In his excursion. So now my, is a guy in my situation better off to, Hey, maybe throw two, three, four, even four days at a spot because a buck, he might have a loop. That's, I don't know, six, seven miles. Yep. I'll, I'll do a week. Um, I have a similar setup to what you're talking about in like Northern Pennsylvania. Um, I'll hunt up there and up there you'll see, you know, deer have these massive travel routes that they'll make. They're usually, there's a couple of things about them that are consistent. One of them being that they're kind of oval shaped and that they kind of circle them and then they'll cut, you know, they'll basically make a big egg of GPS points. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and they're kind of trying, they're trying to kind of going around the outside of that egg a lot of times. And what I'll see is exactly what you're talking about. I think is would be if, if I'm understanding your setup and how the deer are in your area correctly, which is they could have a very large home range because of, um, in the big wood setting, because of there's a lack of dense, dense food and cover, um, and that the does might be disparate or, you know, far apart then yes, I would say, you know, anywhere between six and 10 days on one singular spot. And, and it sounds crazy, but, um, that to me is the most consistent thing because if what you, what you want to find is you want to find a scrape that's near some does, a scrape that's downwind of some does, the buck will visit it during the daylight during the, you know, this, this 10 or 14 day period where he's looking for those does. It's just whether or not you have the, intestinal fortitude to just sit there hour on hour day on day end on end and just wait for that deer to walk by now if you've got like me and you've got some add um (laughs) you might want to switch it up or do something different in the mornings or the afternoons especially if you have an idea in your area where the most the majority of the scraping happens where i'm at a lot of the scraping happens in the morning and then at nightfall you don't see a lot of 4 p.m scraping where i'm at Um, okay not to say it doesn't happen. I'm just saying if you were to add up all the scraping that gets done, your odds are better in the morning. So, you know, if I had to take a shot in the dark and, and I don't have a ton of Canadian data, but I do have some, um, that I've looked at, my thing would be, yeah, you should be looking to spend six to 10 days, um, on a on a scrape that, you know, deer are going to tend. Mm. Yeah. Or, or near a travel route that, you know, deer are going to take. It doesn't necessarily need to be on a scrape. But it's always kind of like if you if you do have a pinch point or you do have an area that's that you know deer traverse through or that it's near doe bedding, the bucks are going to check that doe bedding. It's always going to happen, and it's very reliable that they're going to leave a scrape near that doe bedding because they want to check the status of the does and of the competitive bucks that are in the area. Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense as well. Um... Yeah, because it's kind of frustrating because a lot of our intel from whitetail for whitetail hunting comes from the states, and it is valuable for sure because I've you know really listened to a ton of podcasts and it helped. I think it really helped me uh, figure out uh, the area that I'm hunting a little bit. I ended up getting a decent buck last year, but it doesn't mirror exactly what we are where we are hunting. You know, it's. So there's, yeah. so one guy say, okay, you have to hang and hunt because the deer are going to be on you. It's like, well, I'm barely seeing any deer a day as it is. So like, how are they going to be getting on me if they aren't even coming through to smell where I've been? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I would say you could set, I mean, my, if I'm hunting your scenario and I'm no, by no, by no means the expert, but I, I would say, you know, I, 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 I do hunt the same, in this setup that you're talking about. I would leave a tree stand up near a scrape or downwind of a bedding area where, you know, bucks are going to be coming through and checking those does. And I would just hunt the same one because they're going to come through when they come through. And, mm-hmm. and they're, they're the, once the, the, once the buck comes through, even if you, even if you did miss him, say you had to work a day or something like that. And he came through while you were gone and he's doing his circle. He's not going to not come back to that place in five or six days again. Yeah. Because he smelled you in there. It's just, he really needs you, that buck will really need to have an experience with you. People have this, 
people have this misconception, I think, about deer, especially bucks, that like once you scent a buck, in, a buck scents you in an area, that they are, will not go to that area anymore. I find it almost to be the opposite is true. Okay. They might go into the area smarter or check your wind, their wind more diligently before they go in there, but they're not going to abandon a good spot. And they're not going to abandon does. They're just going to figure out a different way to get to them. Okay, so that brings me up to another point. Last year hunting, the day or two days before I shot my buck, I had this real big one come in. His main he had his uh, main beams dropped down into basically drop tines. Like that's a really impressive wow. buck too. And I had him at thirty five yards. He was creeping in through the, I guess, the pinch point that I was hunting, but he went on the downwind side, where basically no other deer were traveling. He traveled that. Yeah. I'm guessing he was doing that to smell the whole pinch point. You know, the buck yep. that I ended up shooting, he went right down the pinch point. And so now that yep. buck, I'm sure he, if he did survive, he's going to be going through that area again next year. But now is he going to, yep. do you think in your opinion, is he going to remember that instance where he did catch my wind? He didn't see me up in the tree, he just tucked tail and didn't even snort. He just kind of got out of dodge just like quietly. Yeah. I would say there's a 0% chance that he will be using that data for next year. Oh, okay. Um, I, I would say you could set up to be downwind of where he, how he was trying. Cause what I do see in the data is, um, and this is consistent no matter where I look, when you have a large deer, he's going to just, his travel routes will most likely, especially if he's smart and old, um, I shouldn't say smart. I should say he's developed a heuristic or like a, um, he's developed a, a mode of being that works for him. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's how he gets old. So it's not necessarily like he's a smart buck, although you could say that, like you can use those words because the actions that he's doing are smart, but it's not like these are, I don't believe these are conscious animals, but I believe it's kind of like a dog. Like when you train a dog to do something, um, and that you teach the animal that this means success, then they will keep doing that thing. If it's going to keep getting them fed or positive attention or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So when a buck is, is living, which really all he wants to do is mate and live. And he's figured out a way to, you know, have to mate, to live and to eat. Um, and he's successful doing that. Um, and that means, um, not being shot by someone like you, yeah. uh, they will do these, 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 they're a little spookier than the rest of the deer. And they were probably like that when they were one or two years old. Like, it's not that they necessarily were educated. They just get smarter. And they're a lot of times up there, their, 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 their core ranges will shrink until the rut. They'll kind of have their place that they like when the rut happens, they'll, they'll move around. And, and this is a really long way of saying, um, they'll probably use the same tactics to scent check and go into areas that they've been using their entire lives, which is probably what you witnessed. So I would figure out a way to get a camera hung um, and, and watch them as, you know, a second and third week of October approaches. You're going to catch them in there probably at night. Yeah. And then I would wait for that setup. I would wait for that prime rut week. If you're trying to kill that one deer and I would sit that I would sit a position that allows you to get downwind of him winding this area. Cause what I do, uh, I'm sorry, it took me a long way, a long time to say this, but what I consistently see with large bucks is they will be right off of the main travel spots. So you get a lot of guys that like, like to hunt saddles, especially in a kill country. Mm -hmm. The mature bucks will not use those saddles 
And if they do, they use them at night. But they will bed in a position or they will walk in a position that allows them to scent check that whole saddle, that whole saddle line. Yeah. And then move on past it. So all they're trying to do is they know this is a spot where other deer are going through and does are going through. So they're just trying to scent check those does. Um, they, a lot of times won't even go in there unless a hot doe has just been through there. Um, but you'll see your two-year-old bucks and your one-year-old bucks and your um, does and, and fawns and they'll all be using it like crazy. So you'll get these guys who will set up in saddles and they'll be like, well, I'm not seeing the deer. I'm seeing little guys. I'm seeing two-year-old bucks and stuff like that. I, I can almost guarantee you if it is a good saddle or there's good traffic, that older buck knows you're there and he's downwind of where you are. And while you're, while you're downwind of the saddle, he's downwind of you. And there'll be a trail. Like you'll, a lot of, like I've seen, I've been to areas where I've collected GPS data from, and I've actually looked at how, like I've seen how a buck uses an area, then I'll go in there. There's always a very faint trail where this other buck is using it to scent check these main trails. So, okay. so you do, it's, it's on you to figure out where that is and how he's doing that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So th- that's kind of when, what guys are talking about when they say the faint trails is they're actually meaning yep. there is like a legitimate trail. It's just not as heavily used. Most guys are going to want to hunt the heavily used trail because it looks like yep. you're going to get, uh, you're going to be more successful, but really the big guys are, are using that faint trail. Yep. And they're right off of it. Cause they're trying to send check the rest of the population. They're, they're going like, and you will, a lot of times you only see these really large deer laying down a lot of sign. Yeah. Sometimes you will, but I've seen just as many times where they're not. Yeah. And again, it's just their bucks are, per, they all have their own personalities. They all have their way they do it. But the only reason I say that is because like, don't constrict yourself to one style. Like I'm going to hunt the sign. The only sign that I believe is hunt is constantly huntable. Like people hunt trails, people hunt rubs, people hunt bedding, all those things. I get it. And people, you can be successful doing that. But um, during the prime rut, the scrapes and the the downwind part of scrapes or of heavily used trails are going to be where the bucks are using to, to scent check, you know, many deer at one time. And and they might not even be working that scrape. Um, so it, it's, you know it makes it difficult, but that's why they're five, six, seven year old deer in areas where, where you're talking about is because they've just figured out to use that style. Yeah. Yeah. So when they're going downwind of a scrape, uh, what are, do you have any data that suggests how far they're going downwind of these scrapes? I've seen, I've, I've seen as far out as a hundred yards. Yeah. And I've generally, what I'm seeing is, between 20 and 40 yards off of where you think they would be. Now they might work the scrape at night. They might come in and work it at night. They might not work it at all. I've got data where the deer, where the bucks aren't really working the scrapes at all. But um, if it's nice and calm and there's just maybe like a little bit of a Northern wind and the buck's just trying to get in and out and he's not going to work the scrape, he could be, I would check anywhere between 10 and 40 yards. I'd say is probably a pretty good, a pretty good um, chance of finding some kind of sign that's showing you. And he might even have his own like little scrape or his own little rub line that he's using to go in. And then what you find out is like, you'll follow a rub line sometimes. You're like, I don't know what this rub line is doing. I don't know why this rub line exists or why it's here or whatever, why it's being peppered like this. 
And then, you know, later you see that there's, it's downwind of a scrape that's right off of some doe bedding or something. And you just didn't know that that scrape or that doe bedding was up there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the one big, <laughs> a difficult thing in big woods is finding doe bedding areas. Yep. Just because yep. it seems like it's so spread out. Like yep. I have gone out and I've tracked them, you know, using a tracking app where you mark basically every bit of sign that you find. And it does help. Yep. That that does help in a way. You know, we do get snow here often enough, so you, you are able to do that. And then you kind of get a baseline. That That has helped, you know, kind of dial in an area so it doesn't look so daunting. Um, yep. But, yeah. But I, also you get, a, you get an idea of, like, the other thing, too, is you just try to look at what the commonality is among the bedding. Yeah. Like, why are they choosing the bedding that they are? Because those don't bed like bucks do. Bucks bed with, they try to use the terrain and they try to use their wind to their advantage. And it's not always the same setup that you hear a lot of people talking about, like the popular hunting personalities. I don't, mm-hmm. I'm, I don't see those things consistently. Um, but what I do see with, you know, with those is they're just trying to get into an area where they have a little bit of food. They can see as far as possible. They're not uber concerned with the wind. Yeah. They like this. They like to bed in circles where they're all looking out and the babies can run around and kind of be a little ways away from them, but the does will just sit in a circle and it's usually, you know, a little tiny bit of high ground that's got some clearing around it is, you know, where I start to look for that. And you'll see when, you know, once you start to map all of those things out, you will see those like general areas that they try to focus on and the bucks will learn that too. And then that's when I start to look for those scrapes and, the first, second, third weeks of October that are downwind of those consistent doe places. And, um, that's, that's the money. That's where, for me, again, yeah. there's people that use different tactics, but for me, that's what works for me. Yeah. 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 There's in this area, there's some dynamite scrapes like that are, I've never seen the size of these scrapes before. Uh, it's pretty amazing. And they, it smells actually like, uh, I don't know if you've ever hunted elk, but you can smell the elk quite often when you're elk hunting and it's, it's very conceivable like perceivable that, that you can see yeah I've, I've 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 been around those elk like scrapes and wallows and that type of stuff where you can just smell a rutting animal but i've also smelled um deer scrapes where i know that there's a buck rutting and yeah. i've killed bucks during the rut where i could smell them before i could see them oh nice like yeah. i'm looking for the animal after i've shot it and i'm like oh wow i can smell a rutting buck right now and they've just got the black tarsal glands and they're all yeah. sweated up yeah that's cool yeah yeah so yeah just kind of what you said there with the rub downwind of a scrape. I was hunting this one scrape and not all scrapes are created equal. And I'm kind of new to hunting the big woods and scrapes and trying to figure it out. So maybe I threw too many sits at this particular one, but there was a, like a rub downwind, probably 30, 40 yards from the scrape. And it did cross my mind that this buck maybe because there was a scrape line, I guess it, on this edge, this vegetation edge, you know, where pines meet poplars. Yep. Seems like the deer really yep. like to run that and scrape those areas from what I, yep. from what I've seen. But then you, you would see a few rubs on the downwind side, well, depending where the wind's coming from, but what I would think is the downwind side. Uh, so that does make sense. So that may, might be a good idea to get off 50, 60 yards off these scrapes instead of shooting. Uh, what I will do is I'll get 30 yards downwind this is kind of what I do, Yeah. but like I'm hearing your setup and I'm thinking that that buck did smell you. And what my guess is what I do is let's just to make this simple. So people can visualize this in their mind as we're talking about it. 
say yeah. you have a scrape um, and, and you are, and there's a North, let's just say in your area, it's primarily during this time of year, Canada, it's a North wind, right? Yeah. Maybe it's a Northwest wind or something like that. So you have a scrape when you're just a scrape on the ground. Um, what I do is I will get 30 yards downwind of that scrape, 30, 35 yards, try to have a look at the scrape, like try to see the scrape. And then I will set up. So I'm now remember the scrape is North. I'm South of scrape. Yeah. I will set up. So I'm facing West on the tree. Yeah. So I can see the scrape on my right hand side. Yeah. And I can see to my left on that Northwest side. And I will look on that, you know, I'll look East, but really I'm focusing on like the North, West and South. So that if that buck is trying to hook and he's coming down the line, he's coming from the North and he, then he's going to, he'll do what I see in the GPS data again is they'll like, they'll, they'll do what's called a J hook. Mm-hmm. So they will travel on the West side of that scrape. They'll walk perpendicular to it and then they'll hook around 30 or 40 yards south of it. And if they don't smell anything, then they'll just keep moving along. So it's possible that if that scrape wasn't getting worked or if there weren't other bucks working it and he smells himself and some does on there that aren't hot, he won't continue to go up to, towards the scrape to, to hook and to work it because he needs to establish his dominance or lay a scent down or whatever. He'll just move on. So I'm kind of 30, 35 yards down. Unless I know something that makes me do something else, I'm 30 or 35 yards down. So if he does work, work into the scrape in front of me, he's hooking in front of me. Or if he goes straight to the scrape, I can still shoot him over the scrape. Or if he's being super loopy and he's coming in from like 60 yards downwind, um, I'm just hoping that he's not coming from my downwind side. Like if it's a Northwest, mm-hmm. I hope he's not coming from the Southeast. But if he does, I'll still be able to see him. Yeah. Cause if I'm keeping my head on a swivel. Yeah. And then I know I'm getting beat and then I adjust. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I hope that imagery makes sense. No, it does. It does uh, quite a bit. Uh, I guess because there are like in some areas there are so many scrapes. So th- and I know there's a ton of literature podcasts on this, so people can go find that you know wherever they need to go find it. And we don't have to get into it too much here. But with like with scrapes, primary scrapes, secondary scrapes, uh, basically you're just looking for a community scrape correct? Like something that's been pawed out and used yeah. year after year. So community scrapes can be really good. And I do hunt community scrapes. And there's nothing better than seeing a community scrape. It's one of the you know most awesome things to see in the whitetail woods. Um, but I will also hunt um, just a primary scrape that's downwind of bedding, doe bedding. So when I find a primary scrape that's downwind of doe bedding, I will also hunt those, especially if it's fresh or if I know the does are there. So if I see does, one of the you think of this situation, I'm driving into my spot, I see a field, maybe the field is to the north, and I know south of that is where they bed, and then south of that is where there's a scrape. If I see those doe at four in the morning on that field, and I have a good guess that they're going to be bedding, you know, south where I know that bedding is, and there's that scrape south of that, I will sit that scrape. I'll sit that primary scrape, because a lot of times bucks will just drop a, like a primary scrape, you know, in the same place year after year after year, if it's reliably producing doe bedding, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. And it won't be a primary, or I'm sorry, it won't be a community scrape. It won't be scrape all kinds of year used. You won't see a ton of bucks hitting it, but you will see bucks checking it throughout the rut and waiting for a doe to go and work that scrape or to stand and receive near that scrape. In fact, one of my craziest, 
I was on a massive Maryland buck a few years back and um, I had a doe actually come in heat on the scrape and was sitting there waiting. And I was like, Oh boy, Oh boy, this is gonna be the biggest. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have this deer. Like she was in there like bleeding. Yeah. Like meh, meh, meh. And nice. I was like, Holy crap. This I've never seen. I'd never seen a doe. Like you've seen those doe asterisk cans yeah. before. Yeah. I, I had never seen a doe make a noise like that until that day. And she was in there and I was like, Oh, this has to happen. There's no way this buck's not coming in here. Like this is all too perfect. And she was there for like 15 or 20 minutes and I didn't see nothing. <laughs> I didn't see a <laughs> yeah. dang thing and nothing came in after that. But I mean, it, you know, they will do that and when they do that, you know, the bucks are going to try to get in there. Yeah. So that, uh, I have another thought with that story, um, in a low density area, are you seeing does searching for bucks themselves? No, not, not as much, not in the low density areas. Um, and, and to be honest with you, I'm trying to think of the last time I looked at like low density. I have some in Pennsylvania and I've also got low density data from like Northern Minnesota. And I, I, I have not seen that before. I, I see it more when there's way too many um, does per bucks. I'm thinking of like data I've got from like Virginia, North Carolina on a military base where there are tons of does and there just aren't enough bucks to tend them, then you will start seeing that type of behavior. Mm. But when you have a balanced sex ratio or you have really disparate deer, like in the situations you're talking about, yeah. I would say that almost never happens. Yeah. Okay. Again, yeah. I could be wrong, but it just, to me, it's, you get the most competition out of bucks when you, when you have a low buck to doe ratio. So if you have one buck for two or three does, then you're going to see a lot of daytime buck movement. But if you've got one buck or even one buck for one doe, which yeah. is almost unheard of, but if you were to have that, then you'd have bucks running all day long. But when you've got one buck, one buck for five, six doe or something like that, and, and they're really spread out, then um, uh, it's just unlikely that you're going to see the kind of activity that you want to see during the daylight hours mm -hmm. or even worse in places like Virginia where it's like, 10 does per buck or something like that. And then you just almost never see daytime activity. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So like the one-to-one -one ratio, is that very prevalent in like a wild deer population? I should say wild on a public land, I guess. Is that like a... I mean, it depends on how the, the herds are being managed. I have seen a couple where that's the observed buck to doe ratio or it's like one to two which one to two and one to one is probably pretty even. Like, I don't know if you'd be able to accurately tell the difference between that, mm -hmm. but you do see balanced sex um, ratios. It just depends on the places. And I, again, I don't know a ton about the Canadian data, so I'm sorry that I can't cite that directly, but um, there are, you know, there are states with really well managed whitetail populations. I'm thinking of places like, um, Oh, Western Alabama's got some pretty well-managed um, whitetail populations where you start to see that one to two um, buck to doe ratio. I've seen it in places in Pennsylvania where it's one to two. Um, I've seen North Dakota where it's really low as well. So there are, those places are out there and you will see a lot of daytime movement during those, those, those out, those hours. So, you know, any, if, if you guys are allowed to kill more than one deer, like you always try to get your does either early season or late season so that you have a, a balanced sex ratio in your herd, which will encourage that daylight movement. Yeah, that's right. Well, the biggest thing that we got going here is like predators and winters that take a, a care yeah. of a lot of deer. 
Um, yep. I actually got absolutely. A, yeah, I actually got a pack of wolves taking down a doe in in front of one of my trail cameras. It wasn't on video, but it was picture mode, and you could just see the progression. <laughs> it was pretty wild. Oh wow! Yeah, that was. Is that on your Instagram? I'd like to see that. Have you posted that or anything? I think so, but I'll send it to you, and you can. Yeah, yeah I'd love to see that. Yeah, it was pretty wild because I was uh, taking a guy out bear hunting in spring, and I thought I'll just boot up to my my hunting area. Drove up into there, and to get my camera, I was like, man, I, I knew something was dead. I could. Well, there was a bunch of deer hair all around. I was like, okay, what died? And then I could, I smelt something and I looked behind the camera and sure enough, there was a rib cage there and uh, oh, wow. yeah, I couldn't wait to get home. And I looked at it. It was like, yeah, five to seven wolves in there. And I did hunt that area that, the year before and I did have wolves while well, they didn't work themselves their way in, but they were howling. They were, they were close. I thought, man, I'm grabbing, wow. my, yeah, I'm grabbing my bow thinking, okay, uh, who knows? Maybe I'm going <laughs> to be able to shoot a wolf, which would have been awesome. Right. Yeah. That is cool. Yeah. So then another topic is rattling. And I know you've probably beat this to death already, but just for people that haven't, that don't know about Spartan Forage and the data, is rattling like for mature bucks? Are you seeing these bucks responding to rattling or is there data out there in regards yes, to rattling? Yes, there is. And I, and I have de Texas data, but they actually have pretty balanced sex ratios. Bucks will respond to rattling. So there's a few things about rattling that I'll say. Bucks will respond to it. Um, it's one of the calls that travel the farthest. And when deer see it or hear it, I'm sorry, when deer hear it, they will travel towards it. But you're also likely to get winded while you're doing it. There's a good chance. So unless you can create some kind of topographic, um, if there's a topographic feature or something that prevents them from winding you, maybe a river is to your back or you have a, a cliff to your back that requires them to come straight into you to figure out what's going on. Um, then rattling can be very productive and bucks do respond to rattling because it's kind of like, you know, when you're a kid and two people get into a fight, everyone runs to the fight. Everyone wants to know what's going on. I don't see, I've seen the same thing with deer and deer data. Um, there's a great study done out of Texas that I actually have the data for where they were doing that and the bucks will check in reliably on rattling. Um, but again, you really need to be able to see downwind of you. You don't want to over rattle. You can rattle quite r loudly whenever you're rattling. Mm -hmm. But um, it, again, it's, 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 it's also all the, the personality of the buck and the time of the year makes, you know, obviously rattling is not going to work second week of September when they've just peeled. Um, but, you know, prime seeking and chasing those two and a half, three weeks before, when bucks are moving in on does and looking for the first hot doe, um, rattling can be very good as long as you can see what's downwind of you. Um, so when they come in to send check you before they show up for the party, um, you can see downwind of you. And how far are these bucks on average going downwind? Is it like a hundred yards or is it within a hundred? I would say it's probably, I mean, I, I would have to guess. Um, I would say something probably around 50 to 40 yards or something like that, maybe 60 yards. I've never actually sat there and measured all of them. It's never been, but I've seen, but I've seen bucks come in from as far as away as 400 yards. So they heard four or 500 yards away, um, rattling, a rattling sequence take place and they came in to investigate it. So it's a very good way to pull deer from a long ways. And it's a call that doesn't sound insane when it's being 
you know, amplified and it's very loud because that's what happens. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen Bucks fight before. It's insane. It's loud. It's violent. You can make a lot of noise. Um, in fact, if I do something in the woods where I drop something or I make a lot of noise or maybe something falls off the tree or whatever, I'll do a rattling sequence afterwards. Oh, that's a good idea. Um, just to, just to cover your noise up because the bucks and the does will listen and they will hear the noise, especially if you're near bedding. So if you've just dropped the bag that's gone down the tree and taken a few branches and hit the ground and it's really loud, if you can get the antlers out right away, that's a good idea. Um, and, and, you know, at, rat, rattling on the ground as well can be very productive. But again, you need to make sure that you can see downwind of yourself mm-hmm. and that you know that you're not setting yourself up in a situation where the deer is going to win you and take off. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so now we're looking at time frame. like, is rattling kind of tails off, like, at that November 12th um, date? Or can you be successful right through November? I think you can be successful right through November with it because, you know, two bucks get into an area where there's estrus doe um, and they're right on top of a doe or something like that. The fighting will happen. Um, And it's like, it's just not a note. I've not seen any data that suggests it scares deer off. Like they just hear it and they run like not even does, but again, they will wind it. They will try to wind it to figure out like, Oh, is this Henry and John? Who is this that's up here fighting? Like I want to know what's going on. Or, you know, who are they fighting over? Is that Susan in there? What is, who is that? Um, they do want to figure out what's going on. So, I mean, you know, now I wouldn't over rattle. I wouldn't rattle like crazy. Um, but again, it's going to depend on your, your, your concentration, how many deer are around, um, how dense it is. And in areas like yours, I wouldn't, I would like where you're saying it's, you know, there's not a lot of deer per square mile. I would say you could be pretty aggressive and rattle every hour or maybe hour and a half um, for 10 or 15 seconds and, and get away with it. Especially if, you know, I don't know when your rifle opens, but, you know, having people set up or, 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 or setting up in a way so that when they come in to scent check the rattling, I, I know guys that are very successful doing that. Yeah. 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 Our rifle is middle of November. Um, the second Monday it opens, I believe. Yeah. So I'd say you could be pretty successful if you had like a, a cut in the trees or a long ways and some hardwoods where you could see and you know the wind and then you get a buddy rattling um, and you're, you know, aimed downwind to see what's coming in to check it. I'd say that's, that'd be pretty dynamite. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. I used to have some success rattling, not on anything necessarily big, but over the last few years, you know, I, I just don't know what it is. Uh, I'm not getting that much action, but oh, well, that's, Yeah. I mean, I've never, again, like I've looked through quite a bit of data. I've just never seen it scaring animals off. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good, no, that's a good idea. I've just never seen that. Yeah. If you drop something, uh, make some noise. I'm thinking just getting into the tree because I generally hang sticks and lone wolf sticks. I get up and I use the the lone wolf stand, uh, like the original stuff, not the, not the new lightweight stuff that they're making. But so sometimes it's not. I've still got my sticks and my sticks and stand from almost 10 years ago. Yeah. Nine years ago. Yeah. I still I, use the same ones. I just like them and they work and I don't really want to upgrade. Yeah. I'm with you on that. And I think I'm at the age, you know, where I can still carry in an extra 10 pounds if, you know, it, it's okay. I'm going like maybe a mile at the most in most areas within a mile. So if I can't carry an extra yep. 10 pounds, like 
well, maybe I should be hitting the gym a little bit harder then. <laughs> That's how I see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm the same way. Yeah. I, I'm not one of those guys that's super concerned about cutting like a quarter of a pound out of my pack out. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. And out here in Manitoba, it's so, it can be so cold that it's like, I'm carrying a heater bodysuit in, I'm carrying, you know, maybe a thermos with some hot chocolate or coffee, something just to keep me warm yep. throughout the day and then some snacks. And it's like, well, it, it's a lot of weight already. So I don't really see the need to. Dude, yeah, I remember shit. walking to school in Plum Coulee in second grade in those 40 mile an hour winds yeah. where yeah. you're walking uh, with your back to the wind as you're walking to school. It can get pretty nasty. Oh, there. yeah. Yeah, it'll push you right over. That's for yep, sure. Sure will. Yeah. So I guess just uh, if you can tell people kind of what Spartan Forge is, you know, um, I know you've done that a lot on a lot of other podcasts, but here you're hitting another demographic here in Manitoba and who knows uh, other places in Canada that might not have heard of you guys and maybe your plans for getting a, a Canadian Spartan Forge. You kind of touched on it at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, so Spartan Forge is a, uh, I, I, we kind of consider ourselves a military intelligence, military intelligence, a machine learning company first and foremost. I did military intelligence for the government, the military in the U S for many years. Um, and really it's trying to, you know, the simplest and the quickest way to say it is there's a lot of variables involved in the planning and execution of a deer hunt or any hunt for that matter. And we are trying to centralize all of the information that would surround that targeting cycle or that isolation of variable, that variable, variable analysis that you'll do before you go hunting and try to put it all in one place and use, most, use the most accurate data possible. Um, and that includes mapping and wind analysis and, you know, things that would help you make you successful in all of the scenarios that we were talking about earlier when it comes to understanding the wind and the prevalent winds and how deer use wind to evade predators and to send check does and all of that stuff. Um, but the, the, all the way down to the, um, to the, uh, the, the Intel data that relates to the peak and prime ruts and, 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 uh, We've also made a neural network out of collared GPS data, which is really just a fancy way of saying is we've used computers to do the analysis on how deer use terrain and wind to their advantage. And we've taught a machine to kind of do its own multivariate analysis with a neural network, which is really just nonlinear algebra is the best way to think about it. And it's building all of these patterns and the machine can look at weather data and then make predictions on how deer will move. And our neural network predicts based on, Will the deer be focused on staying in their bedding areas for most of the daylight hours? Will they be transitioning out of those bedding areas by going and working scrapes on the way out of a bed or staging before they head into a field? We call that transition area. Or could they be throughout their full range throughout the day? So with Spartan Forge, we've put all of those things together with some pretty good mapping. And we have built our Canadian... Um, app that we're trying to get it approved in the app store right now. It's proving a little difficult. Um, just with, um, when you have an application, uh, you know, that there's always wickets that you have to go through when it comes to things like location sharing. Um, and it's been a little more difficult getting it approved in Canada, but I think we're pretty close. Um, and it'll be missing a couple of things. We don't have property data. We haven't been able to locate a good source of property data in Canada. Um, uh, in the formats that we need to overlay it, but I know it's out there. So I'm going to keep looking for it, but, uh, it will have the neural network. That will be prediction. It'll have the mapping. Um, it'll have a few maps. I think there are, um, 
uh, with the exception of our UAV map, which we haven't um, gotten up in Canada yet, the other three maps will be present there. Um, they'll have the, the, the wind and the weather and the forecast and all of that analysis. Um, and we're working on getting that out. And I'd say it's about a 50 or 60% solution this year, but we've had a lot of Canadians ask, you know, when we're doing it. And like I said earlier, when we first started talking, I lived in Canada for many years and I loved it up there and we're trying to get something, a good product out there for you guys. So I think what we're going to be giving you guys this year will kind of be a 50 or 60% solution. And then over the, um, over the summer and spring, we're going to refine it and locate more data. And as we hire more people, we can devote more, pe more people to it. Right now, um, there's about 10 of us working in the company, and um, we're hiring more all the time. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we will be looking for people to help us with Canadian data. So watch us on Instagram. If you are a Canadian hunter and you want to help us out with the acquisition of that data, we pay pretty well. So we're going to be hiring research teams to help us out with the Canadian stuff in the off-season and hopefully get a better, um, more inclusive app from a data standpoint next for, next year for you guys. Um, and yeah, we're, we're pretty excited and I'm happy to do it. And, you know, yeah, I think that's we're pretty much what we, what we got. Yeah. Oh, I'm pretty excited for it because the success rate of 50 to 60%, like a guy on his own who just has maybe a week of holidays at best, which is generally what guys take here if they're lucky. Yeah, uh, and then it's just yep. weekends from there. Maybe the odd day that they get to take off of work, and it just that's that's huge because on their own, the success rate of guessing what a deer is going to do is probably quite a bit less than fifty or sixty percent. Yeah, I mean, I've got people who are self-proclaimed experts on it, and I've tested their models, and they test at like thirteen to seventeen percent accuracy. Well, there you go. So you have somebody who's been hunting for 50 years and they say they have deer figured out and then I'll take their methods that they use and I'll build a model of their methods and it's, you know, you're better off flipping a coin yeah, um, than following some of those other models. So as far as Canadian data is concerned, we've got quite a bit of it actually. Um, and we've got even more elk and mule deer data and we'll be building those models in the future. And um, yeah, we, we look forward to uh, getting bigger and better up there as we, as we progress. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, I guess one last question I didn't ask you, but have you elk hunted? Or have you hunted for any other species uh, other than deer? I've done moose and bear actually both up in Canada. Okay. Um, and uh, I was not successful with moose, although I did see moose. I, didn't never, I, I had a bow on me. I was trying to bow hunt them. Yeah. Getting in close was pretty difficult. Um, that was in Ontario. And then I did moose a couple of years out in Quebec. Um, I'm not sure if we were recording earlier when I talked about it or not, but I had talked about this place called Lac Brulee up in, yeah. uh, in Quebec. I loved it up there. It was great. Fishing fishing was amazing. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I've done those species, and then I've done a lot of hog hunting. Um, I've not done elk yet. I'm going to um, in the near future. And we're actually partnering with some Western companies in the U.S. here, pretty big names, that will be pushing out some stuff next year. Um, well, actually, later in this year and next year, um, that will announce in due course. But yeah, it's uh, I try to hunt as much as I can, but it's been few and far between now since I started this company. But I do have a, I, I'm planning to to do the opener in North Dakota in the beginning of September, and uh, I'm planned to do our veterans hunt that we host. It's going to be in Alabama this year. Um, so if people want to hunt with our pro staff and with some veterans, 
um, they can sign up for that. Um, we're going to start marketing that here in a couple of weeks and you'll get a bunch of cool gear and be able to hang out with us for about a week and, um, put some gear on the ground and enjoy some good food. We're hiring a chef this year and, uh, we're going to be doing it in January in Alabama during their rut down there. Oh, that sounds like a good, uh, Canadian winter vacation right there. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So hopefully, uh, you know, the Canadian folks can, um, can sign up for the drawing and you don't have to be a veteran to enter it. It's just, we will pick, um, I think we're going to do four people this year. We will, we will pick two veterans and then two non-veterans to come and do it. So we may, well, we may try to do six, but we're for sure going to do four. Yeah. Um, so we'll pick some veterans. We'll pick some non-veterans. You don't have to be a veteran to enter and, uh, it's going to be a good time and it all goes towards supporting, um, um, veterans and, uh, getting some gear on the ground and having a good time. Right on. Well, that sounds great. And I will be looking forward to the release of the Canadian uh, version there uh, in the next coming weeks, hopefully. And then, yeah, well, best of luck uh, this season, Bill. Uh, well, thanks for having me on and I'll happy to jump on any other time you guys want to talk shop and uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks I'll, again for the opportunity. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you.